0: And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist Gary Machuta. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today, kicking off a brand new week. And uh, it's good to be back in the dojo in the swing of things. Uh, I had a very busy weekend, and now it's time to get back into the swing of things. And we're going to do it with uh, the sensei is going to be the guest today, I guess you could say. And uh, as you know, Throughout the this month, maybe next month, whenever I have a break in the schedule, I was planning on staying on and going through some of my stuff in my book, Making Sense of Mary. And we've already gone over a number of things in previous episodes. We talked about how you can't honor Mary too much so as to make her a goddess. That's an impossibility. Uh, got a lot of good feedback on that one. Uh, talked about God's perfect plan of redemption and how God most perfectly redeems us. And the only way he does that is by using both a female and a male. You couldn't do it with just a male alone. And we talked about that. And that's why Mary plays a very important role in redemption. Of course, she doesn't redeem us, but nevertheless, she does lay down the necessary circumstances for the Redeemer. And last time I was on the show, we talked about the first gospel. Genesis 3.15, and uh, we're going to pick up a little bit on that part, but I want to focus on Mary as the promised sign, uh, usually in apologetics. When we talk about uh, Christian apologetics and, and Catholic apologetics, the Old Testament focuses on Messianic prophecies. But did you know that there is Marian prophecies as well, and uh, some of these Prophecies are incredibly important because Mary is seen in this prophetic stream as a kind of trigger sign. It's when a certain woman gives birth that God is going to restore Israel. And so a lot of Catholics, I think, there's some of these prophecies I think we know. There's some that we don't know. And I think there's certainly a lot that we don't know in terms of overall context, so I'm going to do my best and squeeze that all in, <laughs> in the last three segments. And so we're going to be talking about Mary's promised sign. So for you Mary lovers out there, and hopefully that's everybody out there, um, I think you'll enjoy it because I'm going to go over some familiar ground, some unfamiliar ground, and maybe some background that even the things that you're familiar with will take on a whole new light. So that's coming up on the other side of the break. This side of the break, we're going to do our Finding the Fallacy and Meet the Early Church Fathers. Today's Finding the Fallacy, Circular Reasoning, and the Early Church Father that we're going to meet today is St. Cyprian of Carthage. St. Cyprian of Carthage, a fantastic Early Church Father, North African Latin writing father. And uh, so we got our docket all filled out and ready to go and that means I want to begin by welcoming you all to the dojo. Welcome aboard, everybody, all of you listening on radio around the country, and also the live stream peeps. Welcome, and all you f- people listening now and in the future around the world through podcasts and other streaming and distribution centers. Like I said, it's awesome to be with you. I'm glad you're listening to the program. But by the way, I also want to encourage all of you, while you're here, uh, please let people know about the program. Let's grow the program. And the best way to do that is tell people and share a link on uh, your email. Just say, hey, there's this apologetic show. Got some great guests, some interesting stuff. Thought you'd be interested. Maybe there's someone who uh, wants to dive into the Bible and marry. This would be a great show to share with them. And you could do that simply by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org. Click on Hands-On Apologetics and scroll down to today's show. And you can do all sorts of stuff. You could download the show for your own listening pleasure at your convenience. You can also share it with friends and do all sorts of stuff with it. So please uh, share it, do some evangelism, some apologetics, and also help us in our mission to make this information better known and loved. Why? Because it makes Jesus better known and loved. That's the bottom line. Uh, also, I want to give you my email address. This is the official dojo mail, uh, email address, boy, come on, Gary, think. And that is questions at handsonapologetics.com. I only say this every day for the past couple of years. Why should I get it right? Questions at handsonapologetics.com. That goes directly to me. I do respond. And by the way, thank you so much for your guest suggestions. Uh, I'm already checking out some of them. And hopefully we'll have some on the show shortly. So uh, thank you. Keep them coming. By the way, if you're going to do that, please send me some contact info and a link to their stuff so I can check it out. If they're dojo quality, I'll definitely give them an invite to come on the show, give them a a leg up, some exposure, because we're all on the same team, folks. And so it's great to, to help each other out, help our brothers and sisters in the field. All right. So without further ado, why don't we go to Finding the Fallacy, which is Circular Reasoning. Circular reasoning is uh, also known as a circle improving. It's, uh, it is a logical fallacy in which the reasoner begins with what he is trying to end with. Circular reasoning is not a formal logical fallacy but a pragmatic defect in the argument whereby the premises are just as much in need of proof of evidence as the conclusion. And as a consequence, the argument fails to persuade. In other words, uh, uh, there is no reason to accept the premises unless one already believes the conclusion or that the premises provide no independent ground or evidence for the conclusion. By the way, begging the question is closely related to circular reasoning and in modern usage, we basically use the two words for the same thing. So circular reasoning happens a lot. Sometimes it's subtle, especially if it's a very long argument. It's sometimes hard to, to detect. But basically, that's why it's important to trace out each step of somebody's argument so that as you're going through and tracing each step, once you start feeling like a dizzy feeling because you keep going around and around a circle, that's because that person is committing today's finding the fallacy, which is circular reasoning. All right, let's meet our early church father today. It's important early church father indeed. He's early, Latin, North African, the St. Cyprian of Carthage. St. Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, is often called the African Pope. He was born in Carthage of wealthy pagan parents between the years two hundred and two ten A.D., He was converted to Christianity about the year 246 AD and was raised to the priesthood soon afterwards. In 248 or 249 AD, he was made Bishop of Carthage. When Diocletian persecution broke out in 250, he found a safe refuge in the hills outside the city from where, in comparative safety, he directed his flock by letters to his clergy. No doubt, Cyprian's action in taking safe refuge Was a prudent course of conduct, and he proved later that he was ready for martyrdom. But his present conduct made him an easy target for the barbs of his enemies, especially when he uh, he found it necessary to reprove the faction who wanted an immediate and easily easy reconciliation of the lapsed. One of this faction, a priest named Novatius or Novatus, excuse me showed his bad faith when breaking with with Cyprian, alleged because Cyprian was not easy enough with the lapsed. He went to Rome and joined the schism of Novation, who was extreme rigorous in respect to the reconciliation of the lapsed, generally denying reconciliation entirely. Now, by the way, the lapse means during a time of persecution, these people uh, offered incense to the emperor or destroyed sacred books, or basically repudiated the faith. After the persecution, they want to be reconciled with the church. So the Novationists said, no, you can't be. Uh, However, uh, Cyprian had a little bit more moderate view, and, uh, of course, uh, Pope also had a much more moderate view as well. Although Cyprian was on excellent terms with Pope Saint Cornelius I, who reigned from 251 to 253, he fell out sharply with Cornelius' successor, Saint Pope Saint Stephen, on the question of rebaptizing of converted heretics. It was the immemorial custom of the African Church to regard baptism conferred by heretics as invalid, and in spite of Saint Stephen's severe warnings, Cyprian never yielded. His attitude was simply that every bishop is responsible for his own actions, answerable to God alone. The dispute was just as at the dangerous stage when an edict from the Emperor Valentinian, renewing the persecutory measures against the Christians, prevented it from being from ending in disaster. Stephan was martyred in 256 A.D. Cyprian exiled to Coribus in August of 257 AD, was beheaded near Carthage on September 14th, 258 AD. He was the first African bishop to die a martyr's death. So St. Cyprian, pray for us. Uh, There are several works of his on the unity of the church and on the Donatist that are very common uh, texts used in apologetics. And uh, I don't think we have time to actually read from these texts. But nevertheless, uh, very, very good and very influential, by the way, with another North African figure that you may have heard of, namely St. Augustine. So St. Augustine uh, drew from a lot of St. Cyprian's writings and held them in extreme high esteem. And, uh, yeah, so there you go. Uh, You you think things were uh, nice and placid and peaceful in the early church? Not so much, you actually have two saints that were going head-to-head against each other. And that is our early church father for today, St. Cyprian of Carthage. Coming up next, we're going to talk about Mary as the promised sign in the Old Covenant. Stay tuned. Now back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-on apologetics. We're going to talk about Mary. And uh, specifically, we're going through my book, Making Sense of Mary, just picking out things. And today's program, we're going to talk about Mary as the promised sign. And the answer is promised sign of what? Well... I'm glad you asked because that's what this whole program is going to be about. I want to give you some background information too, because uh, there there's a few prophecies we're very familiar with, but we we lack the background information to really see how awesome it is. And so there's aspects about Marian teaching and devotion, even feast days that we truly don't don't appreciate. I guess that would be the word. So, um, yeah, so let's talk about that. First, we'll go to Genesis 3.15. That's where we left off last time I I hosted the show and talked about Mary. Uh, That's the first promise, the first gospel. And the promise is that God will undo what the serpent just achieved with the fall. And he's going to do that by inserting enmity where there is now friendship. And he says, I will put enmity between you the serpent, who's the devil and the woman and between your offspring and her seed. And he will crush your head while you strike at his heel. And boy, there's so much there. And we packed a lot of it last uh, time we got the, I almost said last class because this is almost like a class, but, uh, yeah, there's kingdom language going on here, folks. Um, for example, um, the, the, here you have the, the woman who can't be Eve, and we explained that last time I was on the show. It, it can't be Eve. It, it really can only be the Blessed Virgin Mary who gives birth to Jesus, the true seed, who crushes the head of the serpent, destroys the power of the devil, as it says in First John. But the language is throughout here. In fact, in verse uh, Genesis 3, 14, God tells the serpent that on your belly you'll go, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. Uh, And by the way, this is misunderstood by a lot of people. It's taken literally. I mean, there are fundamentalists out there that believe snakes originally had legs. And so this is where they end up losing their legs. Uh, And also this idea of of bruising your head, a striking or crushing of a head. Both these things indicate uh, the subjugation of a kingdom by another kingdom. So when God says to the serpent that he's going to crawl on his belly and eat dust, this is later on applied to, like I said, one kingdom destroying another kingdom. Same thing with uh, crushing a head. For example, in Isaiah forty nine twenty three, it says, Kings will be your guardians and their princesses, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And Psalm seventy-two nine eleven, it says, "Let nomads of the desert bow before Him; His enemies lick the dust." And also Micah seven uh, seventeen, interesting enough, says, "They lick the dust like a serpent, like the reptiles of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. Uh, they will come in dread, and they will be afraid before You." So, see, kingdom language, changes of dominion, because the, the devil had won a certain dominion over the earth through the fall. God's going to undo that through the new Adam. Same thing with crushing heads. In Psalm 69, uh, 22, God will crush the skulls of the enemy. In Psalm 74, 13 through 14, he, you divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the serpent monsters in the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. And also in Sirach 36, 7 and 9 says, Hasten to the day, bring on the time, crush the heads of the hostile rulers. So crushing heads, eating dust. This is kingdom language. And interesting enough, so it points to the Messiah, but it also points to a kingdom. So that's one of those threads that runs throughout the Bible, this kingdom. And of course, it ultimately comes to flourishing with David, well, actually with Saul. And uh, with Saul, um, the people got tired of the judges, and they're tired of uh, you know things going one way or another, depending on their fidelity to God. They looked at the nations and said, hey, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king over us. And uh, Samuel goes to God, and God says, don't, don't, be sad. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me because God was the true and is the king. Right. And uh, so but they want to be like the nations. So he says, go ahead and let them have a king. There's going to be some laws the king has to follow and they're going to regret it. He's going to end up being a monster. So he, he goes and they get the first king, King Saul, who turns out to be Okay at first, and then a sadistic maniac at the end. Uh, A really, really insane, horrible person. So much so that David, the man after God's own heart, has to run for his lives on numerous occasions because uh, Saul tried to kill him. He keeps trying to kill him, then he and so on and so forth. Eventually Saul dies, and David becomes king. And David, once he has put down all the enemies and there's peace in the land, He's living in a palace and he thinks to himself, why am I living in a palace? Well, God is living in a tent, you know, the tabernacle, this this uh, portable temple, if you will, that the Jews had used since the Exodus. So he wants to build a temple and he asks the prophet to inquire on the Lord on this. And God responds in an interesting way. He doesn't say, thanks, David. Yeah, you can do it. Instead, he says, uh, no, David, you're not going to build me a temple. Your son will build me a temple. And you find this, by the way, in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. Your son will build a temple. In fact, it's really cool in the scriptures because the word house can mean temple. The word house can mean a dynasty, like the house of Romanov or the house of Bourbon. So God says to David, you're not going to build me a house, like a temple. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty, And I will establish David's kingdom. I shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. So God promises David that forever there will be a son of David on the throne. And uh, everything seems to go well until near the end of David's life. Why? Well, because... You need a successor to have a dynasty. And David had many wives. And he had promised earlier Bathsheba that her son Solomon would sit on the throne. But there's this other guy, Adonijah, who, you know, before David dies, he's already butting up to all the big and powerful people in the kingdom. In other words, he, he's getting in a position to take the throne. So Bathsheba is worried and obviously for the right reason, because if he becomes king, what's he going to do with her and Solomon? Well, he'll exile her or kill her, because after all, they have just as much claim to the throne as he does in his eyes. So Bathsheba does in First Kings 1. She goes to King David on his deathbed and reminds him of his promise, and he swears an oath that her son Solomon will reign after me and sit on my throne in my place. And then Bathsheba bowing down to the floor in homage to the king. Notice, you know, prostrating before somebody. This isn't worship. This is just honoring. Uh, So, you know, she says, may my Lord King David live forever. And this establishes a very important component. This is something that I pointed out way back when I wrote Making Sense of Mary. It wasn't really well known at that time. It's become better known now. But this is the instrument through which the Davidic monarchy has succession. This is how you get the dynasty. Since kings have many wives, many queens, and of course you have many sons, you determine the, the next successor by this. The king gives the promise to one of his queens that her son will sit on the throne. We just saw that in First Kings with Bathsheba. And then when the king dies, or when the child's of age, that child becomes king, and the queen who receives the promise becomes the queen mother. And we'll probably have an episode where we talk about the queen mother. Then when he grows old, and he has many wives or queens, uh, he gives one of them a promise that her son will sit on the throne, and again, he becomes king, and she becomes queen mother. And that's how the succession of the Davidic dynasty continues. And uh, I I realized the importance here of the succession, actually, from an anti-Catholic gentleman uh, whose name is James White. And uh, if it wasn't for him and his objections, I would have never realized the importance of this sequence because... He was arguing against Mary's queen mother, and he says that this office of queen mother was not really important because, after all, Solomon—excuse me—Saul didn't have a queen mother, and David didn't have a queen mother. And I thought that's a really good objection. They didn't—they didn't have queen mothers. And then it occurred to me that the reason why they didn't have queen mothers is because they didn't either. They didn't have a dynasty like Saul. Right, He died before a successor could take this throne and there would have been a, a dynasty of Saul. And also David was the beginning of a dynasty. So obviously he didn't inherit somebody else's dynasty. He started his own. Okay, And that's why there was no queen mother, because his father wasn't king. And so he didn't promise one of his wives that David would be on the throne. So he starts a whole new dynasty. And so that that was like the light clicked on and i realized yeah this is how this is the mechanism by which the dynasty goes and later on when um when Judah is taken into exile in babylon and they come back and there's no queen mother and there's no king but there are plenty of sons of David you have to ask yourself why didn't they start the davidic monarchy Well, because the line of succession broke. Without a queen mother who receives a promise or a king, you can't continue the dynasty. Whoever, if there was a son of David who said, hey, I'll be king, he would start his own dynasty, right? That link was broken. And that's a huge tension in Scripture because God said that there will always be David's son sitting on the throne forever. So how is that reconciled? Well... We'll talk about that in a second, right? So um, that's something to keep in your back pockets, folks, is that's how the succession, that's how the dynasty works. And when we come back on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about another crisis that happens in the kingdom. This time it's in the day of King Hayaz, and Isaiah comes in and offers a solution to a similar problem in that... Uh, there's a possibility that King Ahaz, who's the son of David, that his succession is going to break. And we're going to see how God says he's going to repair that so that the dynasty will continue through Ahaz, of course, continuing David's dynasty. All right. So lots of great stuff. I know I'm throwing a lot of info at you. Trust me, this will pay dividends if you can follow me through this. And uh, you'll listen to Hands-On Apologetics. We'll be right back right after this. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. We are chatting about uh, Mary, and specifically Mary is the promised sign. We've already seen one, Genesis 3.15, but now we're going to go to our next sign, which is in Isaiah 7.14. But I need to give you a little background info in case uh, um, you're not familiar with the the historical backdrop to this, because it's very important. Because Solomon builds the temple and he starts off very wise, but he becomes wicked and begins to have many wives and many horses. In other words... He has many foreign alliances, and he has huge standing armies, which are very expensive. And so as a result, all of Israel is being taxed to death by him. And when Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam comes on the scene, and the people complain they want a tax cut. So here's the first tax rebellion happens. Rehoboam says, hey, you haven't seen taxes yet. I'm going to tax even more. And so that's when the ten tribes in the north separate from Judah and Benjamin in the south. So now we have a divided kingdom. You have the kingdom of Israel in the north. You have the tiny kingdom of Judah in the south. Judah continues the Davidic line where Israel becomes uh, polytheistic. They start worshiping the the gods of the nations. And God comes in judgment by raising up a horrible A horrible kingdom known as Assyria. Assyria was the big bad uh, enemies in the ancient world. They could conquer anybody. And as a result, they start pushing their neighbors around. So if in your mind, I want you to picture this. Starting from the bottom, you have Judah. And then above Judah to the north, you have Israel. And then above Israel, you have Assyrians. Okay, Assyria. So they're bumping up against Assyria. And Assyria is starting to press them for money, intimidate them, push them around, and so on. Kind of like the big bully on the block. So Israel's tired of this, and they figured there's no way we could go against them toe-to-toe with the Assyrians would lose. Okay, they're just not powerful enough. But maybe, just maybe, if we make alliance with Damascus and maybe Egypt and and Judah, uh, maybe we can at least get them to stop picking around on us. At least we have some clout. So they start their endeavor, but the problem is Judah's safe in the south. And at the time, King Ahaz is the king. Ahaz is actually a pretty wicked king. And he doesn't want anything. He's not going to help out Israel. Um, That's their problem. He's safe. So Israel decides to invade Judah. And their plan is to Uh, Both Israel and Damascus to invade Judah, to conquer Jerusalem and put their own king on the throne, who, by the way, would not be Davidic. In other words, if they succeed, they would nullify God's promise about the Davidic monarchy. So uh, they're right at the gates and Ahaz comes up, up with a terrible idea. He thought, maybe I can make an alliance with Assyria. And then Israel would have to fight a two-front war, and uh, of course they'll lose, and we're buddy-buddy with the Assyrians. So God needs to inform Ahaz, and he does so through the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah basically says to Ahaz, don't do it. That's not going to work. God's going to take care of him. Trust in God. In fact, in Levin, it says... uh, Ask a sign from the Lord your God as let it be as deep as the netherworld or as high as the sky. Go ahead. Anything. God will give you a tremendous sign, and then you'll have faith in him. Just ask for it. And of course, Ahaz in verse 12 says he won't ask for it. He won't tempt the Lord, which, by the way, is kind of duplicitous because he he's pretty wicked. So he says, Isaiah says, listen, O house of David, is it not enough for you to weary men? Must you also weary my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And what's the sign? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he, you shall name him Emmanuel. And it says in verse 15, he shall be living in curds and honey. By the time he learns uh, of uh, to reject the good and choose the, the bad, or reject the bad, choose the good, the land of those two kings whom you dread will shall be deserted. They'll be gone. Okay, so this is the famous Isaiah seven fourteen prophecy, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, obviously with verses 15 and 16, this seems to be a, have been at least partially fulfilled in Isaiah's day because uh, by the time Ahaz's son, who would be Hezekiah, was four or five, the Assyrians were gone. Or excuse me, Israel was gone because the Assyrians threatened them. So there is a partial fulfillment, but there's a lot here that points even beyond that. For example, obviously, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Also, the the, the idea of uh, a young maiden conceiving and bearing a son, by the way, that's the Hebrew. We could have a whole program on why the Greek has virgin and the Hebrew has young maiden, but we won't get into that now. But nevertheless... Um, that's really not as high as the sky and deep as the netherworld. I mean, it's pretty common. It's not a tremendous sign at all, which seems to be what Isaiah is saying, right? So a virgin conceiving a bare son, that is tremendous. So there's a partial fulfillment, but it points to a greater fulfillment later on. So that's the first thing. This is the sign that the Davidic monarchy will not end that it will continue in succession. That's the bottom line. So um, history continues, and unfortunately, Israel gets squashed by the Assyrians. They're carried off to the four corners of the world, they are no more. These are the lost tribes of Israel, if you ever heard that phrase. That's where it comes from. Bab- in in uh, Judah, Babylon comes. Uh, the Judeans were wicked, and so God punishes them with Babylons. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes down to the city. You read about this in Second Kings 24. He besieges it, and he takes away the king, his mother, his servants, his captains, and his officials, and they're taken into captivity in the eighth year of his reign. This is Second Kings 24 again. Ah, so uh, Judah ends up captive in Babylon. But when they come back from captivity, do they restart the dynasty? They can't. Why? Because there's no sitting king. There's no queen mother. So remember that mechanism we talked about in the last segment. That's gone. So there were plenty of sons of David but they couldn't say, hey, I'm, I'll make myself king because that would start their own dynasty. So there's this huge tension that occurs. And Isaiah prophesied about this in Isaiah 11, 1, where he talks about how David's family tree would be cut down. You know, this, this uh, dynasty will appear to be severed, but a branch will come from the, the stump, the root of Jesse. So that's another prophecy or that promised sign that there would be this shoot that comes from the, um, uh, the stump, namely the branch that will come from this cut off stump. So you also have another tension too, because the kingdom of David is gone. I mean, you have the 12 tribes, they're scattered to the four corners of the world and the two remaining tribes come back and there's no divinic dynasty, there's no succession. So how is God's promises gonna be fulfilled? Well, that's where we start going through the other prophets. And you see a string of prophecies that not only talk about the restoration of, of David's kingdom through the Messiah, but guess what? We also have mentions of the Messiah's mother as well. So here's one that you might be familiar with maybe, and some things you might not be familiar with is Micah 5, verse 1 through 3. And I think the versification for Micah is a little different in different Bibles. But it reads, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, too small to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, Okay, whose origin is from of old, from ancient time. Very mysterious. Now, what you probably heard of that, that's quoted in the Gospel of Matthew. What you might not have read is the following verses, which read, Therefore the Lord will give them up until the time when she who is to give birth has born. At the rest of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. He shall stand firm and shepherd his flock by the strength of the Lord, the name of the Lord, his God, and they shall remain, for now his greatness shall reach the ends of the earth. Boy, there's so much to unpack here, folks. What's it talking about? It's talking about all 12, all of Israel is going to be gathered together in the day of the Messiah. The Messiah is going to be a shepherd and his flock, his reign is going to expand throughout the ends of the earth. It's going to be a global kingdom, Okay. And what's the sign that God's going to restore Israel, all 12 tribes? It's when, until the time when she who is to give birth has born. In other words, when the Messiah's mother gives birth to the Messiah. So you have Isaiah seven fourteen, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You have Micah 5, 1 through 3, where she who is to give birth has born. Again, another prophecy about Mary. And uh, yeah, so you see this, there's several strings of prophecies about this ingathering of Israel, the restoration of David's kingdom, and the trigger sign that that's going to happen is the woman. Uh, You see this also in Jeremiah 31, and this also speaks, uh, he goes into great depth about uh, gathering the lost tribes and gathering together all 12 tribes. And actually, as I'm looking at the clock, I don't think we have time to get into Jeremiah 31 in depth. But uh, that's the key. I mean, starting in verse 1 and following, it says that uh, God will restore them. And when we come back from the other side of the break, I'll show you some very interesting details about that restoration, about the Messiah. And about the Messiah's mother. So, here's the music coming up. This is a great place to pause. You listen to Hands-On Apologetics, and we're going through a section in my book, "Making Sense of Mary," we're talking about Mary as the promised sign. I'm going through Marian uh, prophecies in the Old Testament. Or to come right after this, you listen to Hands-On Apologetics. Now, back to Hands on Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888 526 2151 Here's Gary. Welcome back, everybody, to Hands on Apologetics. We're talking about Mary as the promised sign, and we've already gone through a number of Old Testament prophecies about our Lady, Genesis 3:15. Woman and her seed. Also talked about Isaiah 714. During the dynastic crisis that uh, the uh, chair of David would be occupied by a non-Davidic person, and God asked Ahaz, ask for a sign, I'll give it to you. And the sign is, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now we're going to go to um, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. We talked about how the, the 12 tribes in the north are scattered to the four corners of the globe, because of their sin. And and God said, I'm going to restore David's kingdom. That includes all 12 tribes. We kind of saw with Micah, too, how God's going to do it. There's going to be a kingdom that's going to go to the ends of the earth. So it's not so much, even though in prophecy it sounds like they're walking back to Israel, it's actually God's going to go and pluck them. You know, the church, the kingdom is going to expand throughout the world and incorporate them once again into one kingdom. And that's what makes Jeremiah 31 so interesting. In verse 8, it says, Behold, I am bringing them from the north country. I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame. And it continues, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare to the coastlands far off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Okay, so God is scattered has scattered the ten tribes for the wickedness. He's going to gather them to, together like a shepherd. And what's really interesting in verses fifteen and sixteen of, of Jeremiah thirty-one, there's this. He says, "Thus saith the Lord: A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children; she refuses to be comforted for her children." because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. So who's Rachel? What's Ramah? Ramah is the birth, uh, excuse me, that's where Rachel is buried. The tomb of Rachel is around uh, uh Uh, Ramah. And what it's talking about is the punishment, the last drop of punishment will be in Ramah. That's where uh, the last bit of suffering will be shed. And then God's going to pour out his mercy and he's going to restore all 12 tribes and gather them together and wipe the tears of Rachel. So, What's This prophecy probably sounds familiar because if you read the Gospel of Matthew, what you find is that the the murder of the holy innocents by Herod is said to have fulfilled this passage in Jeremiah. In other words, it's the holy innocents' death. That's the last drop of wrath. That's the last drop of suffering that Israel has to endure. And then God is going to pour out his mercy And gather together all the tribes once again, like a shepherd gathers his flock. How beautiful is that? And also, you know, notes the depth that it adds for the death of the holy innocents. Um, In verse 21, there's a cryptic uh, prophecy. It says, Set up road markers and put up guideposts. Turn your attention to the highway, the road by which you went. Turn back, O virgin. Israel, turn back these, your cities. Okay, so God says, look to where Israel left. Put up road markers, guideposts, look to that path. Where did Israel leave in deportation to Assyria? Galilee. Okay, Galilee was the path through which they left. So God is saying, look to Galilee, okay? And it says, how long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? For God has created a new thing in earth. A woman will encompass a man. So look to Galilee when this happens. A woman encompasses a man. That's the new thing that happens on earth. That's when the tribes will be gathered. Okay, why is this important? Where was Jesus' public ministry? Galilee. Okay. And when did uh, this mercy begin to be poured out on mankind? When a woman encompasses a man. And that phrase is very cryptic. And lots of scholars are perplexed at exactly how to render it. That's probably the best rendering, is a woman will encompass a man um, new American Bible has this terrible interpretive <laughs> translation. It's like a woman will encompass a man with devotion as if, you know, that's a new thing on earth. Um, very strange thing. I, that that just doesn't make sense. This obviously is part of that whole chain of uh, prophecies about this woman who is to give birth and institute the Davidic monarchy will be restored and the twelve tribes of Israel will once again encompass a single kingdom. So you have Genesis three fifteen, with the woman's seed. You have Isaiah seven fourteen, with the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. During that dynastic crisis, during Ahaz, you also have Isaiah nine six, a child is born to us, a son is given us, which describes this king who's also going to be called Mighty God, by the way. Yeah, Isaiah eleven one, like we said that that. David's tree is cut off. It's only a stump, yet a branch will come out. Micah 5, you have the woman who is to give birth, has born. And that's when the people will be gathered together. And then I think Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-two fits perfectly in that, although it's a bit cryptic that, yeah, there is a woman who's to give birth that will unleash God's mercy and restore Israel. And that woman's the Blessed Virgin Mary. Right, because she fulfills all of these prophecies, and uh, this also, by the way, brings to light a whole new dimension with the Annunciation, and I think Isaiah seven fourteen as well. If I could do this very quickly, who was sitting on the throne when before Jesus was born? It was Herod. Okay, was Herod Davidic? No, he wasn't Davidic. Was Herod Jewish? No, he wasn't Jewish either. He is an Edomite. And if you know Bible history, you know the Edomites, Edom, were always bitter enemies of the Jews. So there's an intolerable situation where you have this maniac named Herod who is sitting on the throne. In a way, it's almost as if, you know, hearkening back to Isaiah, this is Isaiah 714, it's almost as if Israel accomplished this task of replacing a Davidic king and placing one of their own on there, right? He's not in line. In fact, that's why, that's why the Jews really didn't like Herod. Not only was he a sadistic maniac, but he wasn't even he didn't have a claim to the throne. He wasn't Davidic, he wasn't even Jewish. So, you actually have something like what was going on in Ahaz's day had Israel succeeded, right? You have a non-Davidic non-Jew sitting on the throne. And so at that point, that's when she, who is the bearer has born. Now here's the cool part, folks. This brings a whole different light to the annunciation, right? How is God going to kickstart David's dynasty without starting a new dynasty? Like I said before, there were plenty of sons of David around. Why couldn't one of them say, Hey, I'm King and restart the the dynasty of David. Well, because it doesn't work that way. The succession had broken. And what's that line of succession? What's that mechanism by which the dynasty continues? The king promises one of his wives, his spouses, that she, uh, that her son will sit on the throne. Okay? So you need a king, which they didn't have. You need one of the queens, a spouse of the king, which they didn't have. And it's only then that you can have David's dynasty continue. But if you remember what we said in our first segment, who's the true king of Israel? It wasn't Saul, and it really wasn't David either. It was God himself, right? God himself is the king of Israel. So what does God do to restart David's monarchy? Well, he finds a virgin named Mary, and he sends the angel Gabriel to announce to her his promise. And listen to these words. These are from Luke. This is from Luke one thirty-one through 33. He says, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So here you have a king giving his spouse a promise that her son will sit on David's throne. And so, therefore, the Messiah is of the line of David. He's part of that dynasty. Jesus doesn't start his own dynasty. He's part of David's dynasty in fulfillment of the promise that God gave to David that one of his sons will sit forever on the throne. And indeed, Jesus does sit forever on the throne. He's enthroned right now. And so the Annunciation is really the restart of The Davidic dynasty and the fulfillment of God's promise they made way back in the time of David. And of course, when that virgin conceives and bears a son, that's the trigger sign like we saw in all these other prophecies that God is going to restore all 12 tribes. How? Not by them walking back to Judah or Israel, but by the kingdom that's going to spread to the ends of the earth and be incorporated you know, the lost tribes of Israel will be incorporated into the church. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? So uh, that's Mary as the promised sign. And I I think it's really cool. First, because a lot of Catholics don't know this prophetic thread, all the different prophecies about the Messiah's mother. But also it really does add a lot of depth into things like the Annunciation in Isaiah 714 and other things as well. So, okay, so that all comes. By the way, if you uh, there's a lot of things we went through and maybe you're joining us late and would be interested in more information, go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org. You can access the show and listen to it again. Or if you want all the footnotes and all that, you can check out my book, which is Making Sense of Mary. It's available on amazon.com. And, man, yeah, a lot of stuff. God is awesome. And Mary is awesome as well. All right, folks. Wow, the hour's gone. Coming up next, high-impact Catholic talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Time for me to shut down the Midwest Command Center here. Turn off the dojo lights. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do the All hands on. Bye, bye, everyone.